Good morning. My name is Casey. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 12. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint, for this is he. The word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Good morning. Hallelujah. Our reading be found today. New Testament found, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. If then you be raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things upon the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. My name is Diana. And our gospel reading is found in Luke 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to our Lord Christ. Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that as we listen to your word being read and being taught, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the work of opening our eyes and opening our ears and opening our minds and our hearts 
so that we would see and hear and learn and grow and to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name's Glenn Packy. I serve here as the pastor at New Life Downtown. We're um, kind of a few weeks into a series uh, that's going through a book in the Old Testament called First Samuel, and the series is called Kingdom and Chaos. And really, as we've been working our way through the many episodes of this series, sort of almost like a Netflix show with different kind of stories and a few storylines that are tying together, one of the themes, the threads that runs throughout this whole series is the question of how God brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in the midst of our world of chaos and what happens when we collaborate with him and his kingdom arrives through us and what happens when we don't and chaos uh, perpetuates. As I was thinking about the, the, the message for this week, we're talking about David's anointing. It's found in 1 Samuel 16. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn there and be ready. Uh, we'll work through that text in a moment. But as I was thinking about the text this week, I thought about this plaque that sat on our kitchen in our home growing up. Now, uh, it was my mom's plaque, and I asked her if I could uh, have permission to describe it. And I don't know if she bought it or if someone gave it to them, if it was a wedding gift or whatever. But it was this picture of this woman on her hands and knees scrubbing like the floor and it said on the plaque uh, for this I went to college and <laughs> my mom had many other jobs she taught uh, it worked outside the home and inside the home and all of that stuff and it should have been a clue to me that much of life is made up of these ordinary scrub the floor kind of moments uh, I grew up in a, a charismatic church and with a great youth group and I just loved the experience of it because it taught me to believe that God has a plan and a purpose for our life. And so me and my buddies and our youth group at our church in Malaysia, you know, we'd have the sense of God calling us for a specific purpose and a mighty thing. And then I went off to college at a place in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Oral Roberts University. And it turned out that everyone there was also called uh, to do amazing things. And one of the great things about chapel at ORU is that we would talk about this, about how the Lord was going to send us out to do these sort of history-making, world-changing kind of stuff. And it was amazing. And that is what you should believe, I think, in that stage of your life. It's just that I had made the mistake of thinking that all of life is epic. I had made the mistake of believing that to be called and chosen and anointed by God meant that every single moment was going to be epic. And so when, when we got married and I realized that my Saturdays looked like, you know, cleaning the house, running to Target, like, babe, what are we doing, Bed Bath & Beyond or Home Depot or both if we get a little crazy, you know. And then you realize that so much of your time is not in overtly changing the world, but like changing diapers and stuff, which I had not done prior to, you know, having our own kids. And then I did lots of them. And then we continue to, our life continues to be full of all of these moments. And maybe those aren't the same scenes in your life. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's, oh my gosh, my work is just full of like spreadsheets or I'm just making sales calls or all, this is all I do and I'm just. And maybe in the back of our mind, when you think about even a story like the one we're going to look at today where David gets anointed, you kind of already have your guard up and you're like, well, that's nice for David. <laughs> but you don't know my life. 
Like my life doesn't matter. My life is not going to be found in some epic collection of stories about how God brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. My life is just sort of, yeah. But maybe there's more to the story than we recognize. If we open uh, the Bible to 1 Samuel 16, or you can scroll on your app, or just follow along the screen too, that's okay. It starts like this. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And you may recall that in previous episodes, Saul's been anointed. Saul's won a victory. And then God says, okay, I'll work with this. I didn't, it wasn't my plan for you to have this, a king this way or at this time or for this reason, but I'll work with you if you'll obey me. And then we proceed to hear these stories of Saul's spectacular disobedience. And sandwiched between those stories was the episode from last week where Jonathan has all of this courage. And we're almost, you can almost imagine Samuel's grief at saying, okay, maybe Saul was a letdown, but his son was pretty great. And wouldn't it have been awesome for the, the monarchy to have continued through Saul's household? I mean, what a bummer for Jonathan. And so Samuel's sad, but God says, look, how long will you grieve over Saul or over Saul's house or over the loss of Saul's legacy since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's a tough one to say. For I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. The first thing I want us to notice from this text is that God will fulfill his purpose with or without us. Now, this is sobering. I mean, this is meant to make us tremble. God's determined to partner with someone to bring his kingdom on earth. God decided from the beginning that he wasn't going to just do it from way up high up up in the heavens, that he was going to work with humanity. The question is just whether we want to be part of it or not. Now, just to be clear about a few things, we're not talking about losing our salvation. The analog for that in the Old Testament would have been if Saul woke up one morning and he was no longer an Israelite. He was no longer part of the covenant people of God. All of a sudden, he's a Philistine today. On Monday, I was an Israelite, but on Tuesday, I'm a Philistine. That's not what we're talking about. He's still part of the people of God, but he does not get to participate in the same way. He does not get to carry out the... And actually, for Saul himself, there, there were some immediate changes, but he actually got to finish out his reign. You read the rest of the book, he still sits on the throne. But after his death, it all changes. It all turns. A legacy that could have been his, a heritage that could have been his children's, was no longer there. Now, we all know stories like that. We all know people who say, well, you know, the Lord by God's grace, has saved them and has rescued them, and they're part of the family of God. But man, it's a little bit sad of how they've set a little trajectory in motion that has affected others, consequences of other people's sin. And so the sobering warning here is that God will do what he's going to do with or without us. And sometimes we imagine that we are essential to the story. God, I'm so special. You couldn't do this without me. And God's like, I'd rather do it with you. It's true, because I love you. But I'm going to do it with or without you. Listen, as a, as a church, I think that's a sobering thought. One of the reasons why we 
walk through the church calendar. One of the reasons why we even enter a season like Lent and then Easter is it's our way of reminding ourselves that Christianity did not begin with New Life Downtown. The church did not begin with New Life Church. The church began 2,000 years ago. And there have been others before us, and there will be others after us. Our part in the story matters, but we're not, we're not the whole story. Does that make sense? God's going to do this. And so in a sense, it humbles me not to think, oh, not to have delusions of grandeur. Oh, we're the most important thing since blah, 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 blah. We're going to change it. I don't know what we will or will not change. Only God knows that. But our job is to steward this moment well. Steward this season well. Uh, we don't know what's come before. We don't know what's coming after. We're not sure in the grand scheme of things what was really the pivotal moment, the hinge moment. But what we have is now. Steward this moment now. Say to the Lord now, Lord, have your will through me. God, have your way through me. I want you to partner with me. I want to partner with you. As the story goes on in verse 2, it's Samuel then says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Just in case you, we don't, uh, we miss maybe the gravity of what God's asking Samuel to do. He's asking him to anoint a different lineage king when there's a sitting monarch on the throne. There's a word for that. It's called a coup. <laughs> like this is, you, this is sedition. You can't do that. You can't go say someone else is going to have the monarchy. I mean, the, the histories of different monarchies show us moments where little plans of sedition are at work and treachery and treason. And Samuel's like, I don't want to be part of treason. And so the Lord says, I'll help you with some sneakery here. <laughs> And the Lord says, take a heifer with you. That's not a word. And, and, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I like this because God's like, Samuel, I got a little plan worked out. Here's how we're going to do this. Take a little heifer. And then verse 3. <laughs> and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me whom I will declare to you. And so Samuel's like, okay, we're gonna do this. It's gonna be a bit of a private scene. The opposite of Saul's anointing. Saul's anointing was a public spectacle, remember? All the tribes were there, all the families were there, and then the spotlight like zeroed in. This is gonna be different. This is gonna be in some obscure town with some kind of family that we don't really know about. And Samuel's not even sure who the person is. With Saul, they already knew. And so Samuel's like, okay, God, are you gonna make this obvious in some way? And so verse six when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab or Eliab and, th and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel's like, oh, this must be the guy. Firstborn, check. What else? Do but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. I mean, do you remember this from a couple episodes again? Again with the tall guy thing. <laughs> You know, and God's like, Samuel, don't fall for that. We've been over this. Like, it's fine. It's not bad to be tall, but that's not all. Okay, I'm going to stop before I keep rhyming. Don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And then verse 8, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. We can't help it. But, on the, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. There's an echo here to me of the scene in Genesis 
where God parades the animals, the creatures, one by one before Adam. And it says, and among them there was no companion found suitable for Adam. And I can't help but hear the echo in this where God is determined to partner with human beings to say, look, I don't zap from afar. I work from within. And because I work from within, I'm looking for a companion in this kingdom bringing work. And he says, no, not you. No, not you. No, not you. And an echo of that Genesis scene, we hear the phrase, and there was not found anyone suitable, trustworthy, ready. Verse 11. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I mean, think of this. It's a big deal when the prophet in all of Israel comes to visit your family. It's a big deal. How insignificant was David that Jesse was like, the prophet's coming. Everybody put on your best whatever burlap and let's show up here. You know, we all got to be, we all got but, but Jesse's like, uh, David... No, just carry on. You're fine. Just keep taking care of the sheep. I mean, how insignificant was David that Jesse doesn't even invite him to the most sacred event their family's ever experienced? Think about that. Oh, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Samuel's like, oh, we're, we're, this, we're not even going to take a time out. Like, we're going to stand. We're going to wait. This is it. Now, I was looking this week for pictures, maybe paintings of David the shepherd boy. Sadly, everything I found looked like it was in Austria or the Swiss Alps. And it just seemed a little bit too, you know, romanticized, too airbrushed, you know, like Heidi was maybe in the backdraft over there, you know. I don't think that's what it looks like. So then I thought, I'm not going to Google David and the shepherd boy. I said, I'm going to Google a Middle Eastern shepherd boy. And they found this picture of an Afghan shepherd from a few years ago. And I thought maybe now we're getting closer to the idea. David is not this, on this idyllic sort of Swiss Alps scene with his lederhosen or whatever. <laughs> you know. This is David, probably unwashed and got this dirty sheep and tall grass and maybe like a Bedouin tribe. Now we're getting the scene of just how sort of seemingly insignificant he would have been. This guy? You want to call him? See, God sees what we don't see. God sees what we don't see. I think this is a point, this is a little theme that's been at work all through 1 Samuel. Remember when we're introduced to Eli, the aging priest, it says his eyesight was fading. He couldn't see anymore. Then you, then you get the story of Israel choosing a king, and they choose the one that, they, that to the eyes looks obvious. And Samuel even is tempted to sort of say, this guy looks obvious. And the whole point is God sees what we do not see. God has a superior kind of vision, a superior kind of sight. And I wonder what it would do to our own perspective if we began to see others the way God sees them. You know, last week we're talking about friendships and relationships. Maybe the people that you think are the obvious 
companions. Oh, well, we, you know, we're in the same neighborhood. Our kids are in the same you know, schools and da 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 Maybe there's everything on the externals looks right, but actually something's off. And those aren't the right friends because though you might have the same socioeconomic status, one is chasing materialism and the other is following the Lord. And so sometimes externals are misleading. We say, well, this person, we're going to be great friends. Maybe not. Maybe it's also something to think about when you pursue dating relationships. You say, well, this is the person that probably fits and this is my... Maybe. But what is it that God sees that we aren't seeing? What is it about their own private life with God? How can we try to say, God, help us to see something. My eyes fool me, Lord. Help me to see something more beyond what I see. But I think there's something else in this. When we say that God sees what even we don't see, it means that nothing is lost on God. Nothing is hidden from God. Your tears, your pain, your loss, your questions, your fears, nothing is hidden from God. Maybe all the people around you, all they see is a person who's put together. But you know. You know the other stuff. Nothing is hidden from God. God sees even what we don't see. What is it that God saw about David? It's hard to say for sure. The stories. In 1 Samuel, use phrases like David being a man after God's own heart. At the end of this chapter, we see David playing the harp to minister to Saul. Maybe there's something about David as a worshiper. Maybe there's something that David is cultivating in his secret life that is good. That David is not just tending sheep, but he's also tending his own heart for God. What is it that God sees that David is cultivating in secret? I wonder for us, in those moments where we think that it doesn't matter and it's not significant and nobody cares and I'm just, you could remind yourself, actually, God sees. God sees the way that you, if you're a parent who stays at home with children, God sees the many hours of caring for, cleaning up, taking care of, Children, God sees the way that you're at work with your emails that pile up. God sees all of those things. And maybe what's important for us to note about the story is before David was God's man, he was Jesse's boy. Maybe we've got the story wrong. Maybe Jesse left him out in the field because he thought, I can trust David to keep the stuff going while the rest of us are gone. Maybe there's a sense in which David is trustworthy with what he's been asked to do. And so there's, a, there's something here about paying attention to the hidden places of our life because nothing is hidden from God. Amen. Nothing is hidden from God. The, the way that we carry ourselves matters. God sees it. What's also interesting to me about this story is this is the second time a would-be king is nowhere to be found before, moments before his anointing. You realize that? Both Saul and David were nowhere to be found moments before their anointing. But here's the difference. 
Saul was hiding, David was hidden. Saul was hiding in fear. Oh, imagine the one who was head and shoulders above everyone else was hiding in fear. But the boy whom nobody thought about was hidden in faithfulness. One from fear, the other from faithfulness. Listen, don't make the mistake of thinking that obscurity is in itself a virtue. It is not. It's not a virtue to be obscure, but it is a virtue to be faithful. It is a virtue to be faithful. That's the mark of it. Some of you, you're hiding, and you think it's humility. And God's like, no, actually, you just take a step. I'm calling you to do this. Step out, serve, say something, give, make a new friendship, whatever that might be, step out. And your hiding is not actually a beautiful hiddenness, but a fearfulness. But others of you, you're like, well, I'm just over I mean, nobody really knows me. I don't have a lot of Twitter followers or Insta, whatever. I'm not, I'm not Insta famous, you know, whatever, right? So who cares? <laughs> Your hiddenness can be a place of faithfulness. Your hiddenness can be a place of faithfulness. To say, okay, I'm never going to say that I'm just uh, entry level or I'm just a uh, a, you know, mom who's at home with the kids, or I'm just a dad who does this or that, or I'm just a student, or I'm just, you know, a person with a bunch of roommates right now. I say, well, what's here that I can tend to? What's in this season right now with my roommates, with my classmates, with my family? What's right now that I can tend to? David was faithfully tending something when God saw him. Faithfully tending something. Then, verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What a phrase. God will pour out his power to accomplish his purpose. God will pour out his power in order to accomplish his purpose. You know, many of us, if you're aware of it, maybe you feel it every day. But if not, maybe just in the moments where you stop. But all of us feel less than. Or like, I don't really have what it takes. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's as a friend. You're like, I don't know how to be a great friend. I don't know if I... Maybe it's as a spouse, you're like, this marriage thing is so intimidating. Like, I, everyone else seems to be so far ahead of the game. They've got like a hundred emotion words. I've only got two, you know. <laughs> I don't know how to do this parenting thing. I mean, it's all overwhelming. Uh. And our culture sees our inadequacy and gives us a mantra. And the mantra our culture gives us is, you are enough. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that mantra. In a way, it's a way of saying there's no shame in being where you are. And that's true. There is no shame in being right here, right now, where you are in life. But where that mantra can't deliver for us is we know in our bones, but I'm not enough. Jesus, I think, said it this way in John 15. He said, right as he's telling his disciples that he's about to leave them, and he says in John 15, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's letting them down gently. 
right? I mean, Jesus doesn't say, guys, you're pretty good. You've had three years. You can do it. Peter, you are enough. (laughs) Doesn't say that. He says, guys, let's be honest. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, where our culture tries to give us a, a mantra that we can look in the mirror and repeat and feel better but actually is hollow, Jesus gives us the words of life. The gospel itself says God will pour out his power so that he can accomplish his purposes through you. And in the moments where you feel like you are not enough, God himself is more than enough. He is the reason. He is the reason. In the Old Testament in particular, when the Holy Spirit comes rushing on a person, it's usually for a purpose. It's usually for a task, an assignment. Sometimes it's a battle. So later we're going to see David, his quote-unquote job changes. He goes from being a shepherd to being called into Saul's court. He's kind of Saul's armor bearer. Then he's a harpist. Soon he's going to be fighting a, a giant. Many different settings. One Holy Spirit. Many different settings, one Holy Spirit. Listen, church, what if tomorrow morning, let's say you're a mom, your full work right now is to care for children at home, and that is full work. What if you wake up on Monday morning and you say, come Holy Spirit, pour out your spirit on me so I can love these kids well today? What if you're heading to work and you're saying, okay, I got a whole bunch of spreadsheets and profit and loss analysis statements. I got a whole bunch of deals to close or whatever it is. I got a flight to catch. I got a meeting to go to. You say, but before any of that, before reviewing the spreadsheets and the budgets and the the client, you know, whatever stuff, I'm just going to say, come Holy Spirit, anoint me to fulfill your purpose today. What if you did that? What if you wake up in the morning and before anything else, you say, come on, Lord, Renew your work in me. I know that you have a purpose even in the midst of the changing jobs. Lots of different jobs, lots of different roles, lots of phone calls, and God knows, lots of emails. But even in the midst of it, pour out your Holy Spirit on me now. Pour it out to accomplish your purpose. This whole story, of course, points beyond itself to Jesus. And it's almost as if this whole scene with Jesse's seven boys gets played out on an epic scale where God from heaven, the Father, is looking down and he says, I'm going to make humans to partner with me in in reflecting my kingdom into the world, Adam and Eve. And then he's like, "Mm, nope, I guess they're not going to do that. Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to call you to start a family that will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And no, okay, a mess is there. All right, Moses, I'll raise you up. Moses will be the deliverer. What are you doing murdering that guy, Moses? Okay, but what are you doing hitting the rock, all of this stuff? Like, okay, Moses, you're not going to get in the promised land. Joshua, Joshua, David, finally David. And then we know what happens misusing his power. All of a sudden, the story ends in all the other kings of Israel. And you get to the end of the Old Testament, and it's almost like Yahweh says, is there not anyone who can truly partner with me in my kingdom arriving? And the Father and the Son and the Spirit somehow in the will of the council of the Godhead, say now is the time. 
and the eternal, beloved, begotten Son of God, Jesus says, it's time. The Father sends the Son. The Son comes in human flesh, born in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David, in the middle of Nowheresville, and yet in the very city where Samuel found David. And we're meant to hear those echoes of these, these little hints where the angels say to shepherds, go to Bethlehem, the city of David, and you'll find the king. And then a star appears in the heavens and says to the wise men, go, you're going to find in Bethlehem a king. So there's these little hints if you're paying attention. And then all of a sudden, one day outside the city limits, there's a river and a prophet dressed in camel hair, looking shaggy as ever. Maybe a little more bedraggled than, than Samuel looked, but John the Baptist says, I'm going to baptize you, Jesus. And as he does, God himself can't hold it in anymore and speaks, this is my beloved son. Son of God, long before in Psalm 89, had become a shorthand way of talking about David's descendant. The son of David was, began to be talked about as a son of God. And so the heavens open up and God's got, I've got a double meaning for you. This is my beloved son, the eternally begotten son and the long-awaited descendant of David's son the Son of God, in whom I'm well pleased. And then if Luke's gospel tells the story of Jesus going into the synagogue casually maybe, picking up the scroll of Isaiah, no chapters and verses, but he knows exactly what he's looking for. And he reads, the spirit of the sovereign Lord has been poured out on me so that I might preach good news to the poor, all of this stuff. Jesus rolls it up, puts it away and says, oh, oh, one, one more thing. That scripture's fulfilled today. Mic drop. <laughs> and a few people get it. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the true anointed one who brings God's kingdom. And we won't read the verses from Isaiah, but Isaiah told us that nobody recognized him. Isaiah 53 said, who would believe our report? This person? There was no comeliness, no attractiveness to his face. At least David was ruddy and handsome. Isaiah said the Messiah would be the kind of person that we would reject and despise. And yet Jesus is the true anointed one who brings God's kingdom. The only one fit for the task. But see, here's where it gets better. Sometimes we think that, okay, so Jesus has done it. So cool. So I'll just sit back, coast, Thank God and then wait for heaven. No. The New Testament says, if Jesus is, then you are too. If Jesus is, you are too. <laughs> and if Jesus is the true anointed one, then we become these little anointed ones. And the book of Acts has a mirror image story where the Holy Spirit comes pouring out on the disciples who are gathered in the upper room. And what does Luke say? He says it was like a rushing wind. Is that an echo of 1 Samuel 16, where it says the Spirit of the Lord came rushing upon David, and now these followers of Jesus, the Spirit comes rushing upon them like a rushing wind? And then a few chapters later, these followers of Jesus in Antioch are given a nickname, Christians, they're called, maybe pejoratively, but do you know what that means? Little messiahs, little anointed ones. 
And so I think the followers of Jesus, even if it wasn't meant in a complimentary, would have said, well, yes, actually we are. There is Jesus, the true anointed one. And yes, we are little anointed ones. That's exactly what we are. Paul says it this way to the Colossians. He says, look, have if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I think this is Paul's way of saying, try to see like God sees. Try to see from a heavenly perspective. You've been raised with him, for, he, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why is this all true for us? Because my life is not just hidden on the org chart or hidden amidst domestic chores or hidden among a mountain of project deadlines. My life is hidden with Christ, the anointed one. That's what Christ means. My life is hidden inside the anointed one. And when the anointed one who is my life appears, then we will also appear in glory. In other words, <laughs> you can walk into your homes and neighborhoods and places of work and gyms and whatever tomorrow and say, I know you can't see it, but I'm glorious. I know it may not seem like this, one day you're going to see, I'm glorious. I've been hidden with the anointed one, which means that in Christ, we have become chosen and anointed children of God. That's what we've become in Christ. Chosen and anointed children of God. We're not the eighth son of Jesse, whom nobody really knows, where did he go? We're not the overlooked and forgotten. We're not second-class Christians in the kingdom. We're not less than because, you know, we're not doing, like, spiritual work. We're not, we're not uh, um, unholy because we, we do, quote-unquote, secular work. There's no such thing. There's no, if you are in Christ, you've been anointed to do holy work. Amen. You go into that hospital not like any other doctor goes in. You go in anointed to do holy work. You go into those corporate meetings, not like anyone else is going in. You're like, I know, I know what my job description says. I know what my, uh, you, you know, where I am on the org chart, but I'm hidden with Christ, you see. And so I am a chosen and anointed child of God. I go in that way. I go in with the anointing of the Lord. This morning, if you would, Let's take a moment and let's welcome the Holy Spirit again. Maybe you, you, you've dismissed yourself. You've dismissed your own life. Well, I'm just a retiree. I'm just a, you know, I used to be, but I'm just a. Or if you're younger, you say, well, I'm not yet all the things I want, but I'm just a student right now. I want you to erase all that from your heart. And I want you to see yourself, your own life, the way God sees you. And to say, all right, well, if that's how you see me, Lord, then come Holy Spirit. Amen? So would you open up your hands and bow your heads?
And just where you are, just pray it. Say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come rushing upon us to be friends, husbands and wives, and fathers and mothers, contractors and construction workers, sales reps and marketing agents and realtors and financial planners and doctors and nurses, school teachers, wherever we go, let the Holy Spirit come rushing on us to do God's work in the midst of our work. To bring love and mercy and righteousness and justice and healing wherever we are. We want to participate with you, God. We want your kingdom to come through us. I mean, God, we get to be part of that. Pour out your spirit on us. Give us the grace to be faithful, to steward each season well. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.